0: If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 28, the first letter in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, put your finger there. Don't let it sweat on the page and work its way through. It's going to be a few minutes before we actually get to it, but put something there to hold it if you can. While you're getting there, I'll make one um, encouragement and, and public service announcement, hopefully all packaged together. Uh, We are going through this series in this city for the nations, talking about who we are as a church, who God has created us to be through the gospel, what he's called us to do as his church, and how we are working that out in the life of this local church we call Redemption Hill. And as we're going through this series, which will probably wrap itself up next week, there's been about 50 of you, maybe a few more. I don't have the exact number, but about 50 of you or a few more who have been going through the membership process throughout this entire series on the side. And we've been looking at our statement of faith, what we want to believe as a church, and we're now working through our our church covenant, how we'll live that out. And as we finish this up in the next week, we'll be talking about some of the nuts and bolts about how we do what we do on a very practical level in that process. But I just want to encourage some of you in that... For, for, I don't know how many, I, I've been really enjoying your stories, and story, enjoying your testimonies that you've been sharing with us in this process, and I don't know for how many of you this is true, but for some, this is the first church you've actually felt like God is, is calling you to commit yourself to, and you're, you're beginning to learn for the first time maybe the priority that God has on the life of the local church, and, and that's unbelievable. I mean, that God would draw you to himself and draw you to this place and you've shared your story and you're considering God's call to commit yourself to a people and it be this people, Uh, that's unbelievably humbling for me and, and for others and it probably makes up the majority of those going through the process. You are coming from another church to Redemption Hill or considering Redemption Hill from another church. Maybe you've moved into Richmond from outside of the city and you were a part of a church somewhere else and now you're coming in, or, or maybe you were a part of another church in the city of Richmond or in the greater area somewhere, but you feel like God is is calling you possibly or potentially to be a part of this church. And I want to remind all of us, not just those, but all of us, uh, of two things. One As we go through this process and day in and day out and and for the months to come learn to live life together and do life together, let us all be very clear and let us all be very aware that as Christians we are not shoppers or consumers searching for the best product. I mean, if anything can be said of the church in this culture and in this country, and we've said it before in the series, and I'll say it again, we have a tendency to judge churches based on how we think particular aspects of that church will meet particular felt needs that we think we have, and we approach God's bride, we approach God's church with this consumption mentality of what it can do for us, and when we do that, we can take churches and line them up on a shelf, much like items at a grocery store, and go one by one by one to find which one gives us what we want for the best price, I want you to be very clear and very aware that as Christians, we are not to be consumers. Looking around at churches, trying to figure out which one can give us what we want for the least amount of effort or whatever it is that you're looking for. I won't put words into your mouth. But pray diligently and seek God's wisdom in in where he would have you give yourself and commit yourself to. Don't be consumers looking for a product. And as you consider partnering and covenanting with redemption hill church to become a member of this church or as you are on the way out of this church whether you're moving or considering partnering and covenanting with another church in this city or somewhere else please don't be a consumer looking for a product and don't think that churches are competitors looking for you and your approval we're not consumer shopping for a product and we're not competitors Please do not go from this church to another or come to this church from another with an attitude or a spirit of grumbling and complaining, talking out of one side of your mouth about the church where you have been and the experience that you have had, failing to see God's grace at work in that place and in those people. Let me remind you that scripture very clearly says that the church, God's people, are also the bride of Christ. Pay very clear attention to the words that you use when you talk about God's bride, It would not go well for you and I if I were to speak of your wife or your significant other the way that some of us speak of the churches that we have been a part of. So please pay very careful attention to how you view this church as you go on or how you view the church where you have been if you come in as you evaluate that process. We're not consumers shopping for a product and we're not competitors with each other fighting and scratching for your approval and for your business. We are the people of God who've been transformed by the grace of God and by the mercy of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, being transformed into his image, who are learning to live as a family, who are learning to live as ambassadors of God. And who are learning to live as servants in this place for God's glory. That's who we are as a church. That's what we've been talking about for the last three or four weeks. This week we're going to move into something a little more particular when we talk about who God has made us to be as a family, as ambassadors and servants. But now what does he call us to do? If that's how he calls us to live, if that's who he defines us as, if that's one way of understanding who we are, then what does he actually call us to do? That's what we're going to begin talking about this week. Around, around here, you may read it. Uh, you may see it on the site. From time to time, you may hear us say it. But we've tried to capture it all in a statement. For some of you who like vision statements or mission statements, I mean, you can probably call that this or call this that. Um, somewhere in the middle of them, you can probably break the statement out and come up with a vision or a mission. I don't know. You're better at that stuff than I am. But you'll hear us say around here, or you'll read on things that we produce around here, that at Redemption Hill... We exist to bring God glory through cultivating gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people who plant churches and transform communities. There's three parts there. You can call one part the vision, you can call the other part the mission, you can call the third part the scope, I don't know, break it up however you want. We're going to unpack two pieces of it this week, and we're going to unpack the third piece next week, and we're going to seek by God's grace to understand what he calls his people to do, what he calls his family, his ambassadors, and his servants to do in this city and ultimately for the nation. So let me pray for us as we get started, and by God's grace, we will, we will make headway this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege. I hope it never ceases to be a privilege in my heart and in our hearts to gather together as your people, that it never ceases to be a privilege to come together as your people and to surrender ourselves to your word, to recognize your mercy and your grace in calling us to yourself and your mercy and your grace in speaking to us and guiding us and your mercy and your grace in transforming us from the inside out that we may somehow, by your grace and by your mercy, be transformed into the image of your Son. That we might live lives in this city that reflect your glory, that reflect your greatness, that reflect your agenda and your passions. We ask that in the time that we have together this morning, you do that very thing by your grace and by your mercy in our hearts. Speak to us, change us, work on us this morning. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Three parts. We'll start with the first part. We'll work our way through the second part and by God's grace next week we will come to the third part and wrap this whole thing up. Part one. We exist. Redemption Hill exists to bring God glory. I mean you can call that the vision. If you're into the vision mission stuff you can say that our vision as a church is to be a people that bring God glory. That is our way of understanding Paul's command Paul's encouragement Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10:31 that no matter whether you eat or whether you drink whatever you do do everything that you do to the glory of God. We exist by God's grace to be a people who in all things with all that we are do everything that he has called us to do on this life in this place for his glory. That is the center of who we believe God is shaping us to be. We believe that that is the center of what God's purpose for his people. And, and I'll be really honest with you. When you talk about the vision stuff and the mission stuff, I get really, really weary of it when it comes to churches because I think we take far too much liberty and far too much authority upon ourselves and try to be far too creative when God has been very clear to the church for, well, really since the inception of the church, what its purpose is and what God's vision for it is. God's vision for his people has always been the same. Since he called a people to himself in Abraham and promised through that people to bless all nations on the earth, God said, I call these people to myself for my glory. And when those people who God called to himself that they could reflect his glory as they were sustained by his power and his mercy rebelled against him and disregarded him and found themselves in sin and in slavery in Egypt, God said, you know what, I'm going to step into your mess and I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And I'm going to call you out of that slavery and out of that sin and set you into a place where you can again worship me and give yourself to me and don't be confused I'm not doing this, God said, through the prophet Ezekiel, for your namesake. I'm not doing this because of you. I'm not doing this for you, that people can make much of you. I'm doing this that through you, my name will not be profaned in the nations. That my glory will be made known to all nations throughout the earth. God has been very committed from the very beginning to his vision for his people. That he be glorified in all things and all that they do. That is God's vision. And we find in Revelation chapter 7 when it's all said and done. And when we see him and we're made like him. And we live for eternity in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. We will sing songs that never grow old and that never get tired. And we will sing songs with people from all tribes and tongues and nations of the earth that bring glory to God, celebrating his love and his mercy and his grace towards us as our Savior and as our Redeemer. God's vision for his people has always been his glory. And so when we talk about what our vision is as a church for this church, we need not go much further than the vision that God has already given us in his scriptures for his church and that we would live and that we would exist to bring glory to God through all that we say and all that we do. And all that we live, how we live. Now, how you work that out is the second part of the process. And God has been clear there too. But let me say this as a a caveat to all this, just in case you think I'm overstating the obvious. We are very intentional here to take the obvious that God has said and to stick the big E on the I-chart. Far too often, we're tempted to say, well, that's obvious. God said that we should go on and find some kind of deeper understanding or deeper meaning for what he was doing. No, God said, this is my vision for his church, that I be glorified. That through you, through your life, through all that you do, I receive glory. You see, the, the chief strategy of Satan, the chief strategy of the enemy to God and his purposes is to do anything that he can do to divert us from the single intention and single plan that God has given his people for all of time. And if he can tempt us to take God's purpose for his people and somehow make it about ourselves, and he's done the very thing that can can render us harmless and render us useless, it's been his strategy since the very beginning. If he can get us to take what God has given us for his glory and somehow turn it back upon ourselves and become a church and become a people who are bent on figuring out how we can make a name for ourselves, how we can do whatever it is that we need to do to get a city and to get a world to pay attention to who we are and talk about how great we are and to want to be where we are for the sake of being a part of who we are, then he's rendered us harmless for the eternal purpose and plan of God. And and so we're being very simplistic And very clear, the big E has to stay on the eye chart. The vision that God has for his people, the vision that we then take upon ourselves as his people is that in all things he be glorified. If we do not keep our eyes firmly set on the big E, on the vision that God has given his people, I I shudder to think of the things that I'll be tempted to chase after. I shudder to think of the things that I'll begin to think are are defining for us as a people And, and I shudder to think of the day that comes when we stand as a people in this city and declare that our vision for this people is somehow built around stuff or things or achievements or accomplishments, somehow short of God's vision and his purpose for his people. Somehow it's about what we can do and what we can achieve and what we can accomplish and what we can attain instead of what God has called us to be. And how he's called us to live. So, part one. God's vision for his people. Our vision as a church is to be a people who bring God glory. And if you're curious, that was week one of this series. I gave you a short recap. Part two. How do we do it? How do we actually do that? God, again, has not left us to ourselves and to our ingenuity, and to our creativity, uh, to our clever thinking, uh, and to our modern strategies to figure out how we best bring him glory. He's given us all that we need. Uh, he's been very clear about his mission, his plan for his church to do the very thing that he's called them to do. And that's what we get in Matthew chapter 28. So I've given you lots of time to get there. Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 16. We're going to start in verse 16 and we're going to go through verse 20 and I'm just going to kind of bob and weave all through this probably. For those of you that have been around know that that's generally my pattern. Matthew 28, we'll start in verse 16. We're coming to the end of Jesus' ministry. He has taught his disciples, he has walked with his people, he has done miracles, he has healed the sick, he has fed the thousands, he has laid his life down as a sacrifice for our sins, he has died, he has been buried in a tomb, and God has vindicated that sacrifice and raised him from the dead, and now Jesus has returned, and he is standing in front of his disciples, again, the resurrected Jesus, and this is what Matthew records the interaction with the resurrected Jesus was like for his disciples, Matthew 28, 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And for those of you who've always heard 12, we're at the part of the story where Judas has already betrayed him. Judas has already betrayed Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus has already gone to the cross. And Judas has already taken his life in guilt and shame and hung himself. So now there's 11. Once there were 12, now there were 11. And the 11 went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus has directed them. And let me say this to you too. That's why I'm, again, that's why I love the Gospels and love the Bible. When you read Matthew, always pay attention to when Matthew records the fact that Jesus went to a mountain. There is a pattern that Matthew is trying to get you to catch. Remember, these were were read to people. And there are certain things when a story is read to you and a story is told to you that you begin to catch as you begin to hear it. You begin to hear things popping up again and again. And if you go back, and and I'll just show you a couple, Matthew chapter 5. Is the story of the crowds gathering around Jesus and pressing in around Jesus and, and, and getting too large and, and closing in on Jesus. And so Matthew records that Jesus went up onto a mountain. And what happened in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He gave the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave what is arguably the greatest teaching of what it means to understand who he is and what his passions are and what his agenda is and what it means to follow him and to be one of his disciples. He, he goes up on a mountain and he unpacks the, one of the greatest sermons ever recorded. In Matthew 17, he's been teaching and training and walking with his disciples. And it says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three of his 12 disciples, up onto a high mountain. Now, high mountain is another time for another sermon, why he recorded that detail. But he said he took him up onto a high mountain. And what happened there in Matthew chapter 17? I'm looking for our biblical scholars now. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a high mountain. And in that moment and in that place, Jesus pulled back the curtain on his nature and on his character. It's the story of the transfiguration when Jesus let Peter, James, and John see who he really was in the depth of the reality of his glory. And we see Peter, the proto-charismatic, the first one to want to see the glory of God, pitch a tent right there and keep it all for himself. This is what we got to do. Let's stay here. Let's don't ever leave this place. Here's the glory. First, proto-charismatic. Highs and lows. Bipolar emotions. Peter, I can pick on the charismatics. I'm one of them. Um, Matthew 17, Jesus pulls, pulls back the curtain. Now you get Matthew chapter 28. Matthew's recording Jesus' last interactions with his disciples. And once again, he says, Jesus, calling his disciples to himself, they go to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And you should automatically be thinking now, as you read Matthew, he is taking them up onto a mountain. Something, something's about to happen. Jesus is about to do something. There's a reason why Matthew records what he records. And verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's just an interesting note. I won't preach that. We'll save that one for another time. But interesting, 11. We're not talking about the multitudes. We're talking about the eleven. The disciples who had walked with him, who Jesus had called to himself, who had been with him through his entire ministry, who had experienced the crucifixion and now experienced the resurrection, experienced the hanging of Judas and the the betrayal of Judas. And now the resurrected Jesus has come to them and called him to the mountain and they have seen him. And it's interesting to note that some still doubted. Some still struggled. Could it really be? Could it all really be true? Is it too good to be true? True. And I love how Jesus leads into this. Verse 18. Jesus came to them. He didn't address their doubt. He didn't speak to the fact that some of them were still wondering. He had had to look at their faces. I mean, if you can try to imagine their faces. Some are worshiping and some are doubting. I'm wondering which one Matthew was. I mean, was that a confession that he wrote into this thing? Or was that some type of, I don't know. um, I, I don't know. I wonder which one he was. Was Matthew worshiping or was he doubting? What were their faces like? And Jesus came to him and he didn't address the doubt. He didn't celebrate the worship. This is what he did. Verse 18. And Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What an amazing statement to lead with. Of all the things that he could have said, of all the things that he could have done, this is how Jesus leads into what he's about to say. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Notice he didn't say all power. Resurrected Jesus, dead, in a tomb, watched you crucified, watched you absolutely beaten to a pulp and buried, standing before you, talking to you, and he doesn't say all power on heaven and earth has been given to me. Wouldn't that be the obvious? Seen him perform miracles, Seen him raise the dead, Seen him walk on the water, He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me because the difference between power and authority is that sheer power is just strength and might. But authority is the right to actually use that power. And this is what Jesus has said, all authority, all right to the power that is in heaven and on earth, all authority has been given to me. There is nothing that exists, Jesus is saying, in the heavens or on the earth that is in any way outside of my authority that I do not have the right to exercise the power over. Think about what he has just said to them. Think about what he has just said and what they have seen. They have seen Jesus walk up to the widow at Nain who was suffering and mourning and just, I, I've been there. I, I've, I've lost a child and she's, she's walking and the people are crying and he walks up to her and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. She's not dead. He's, they've seen him raise children from the dead. They've seen the authority and the power that Jesus has over death. They've seen the power Jesus has over sickness. They've seen him touch lepers, outcasts, shameful members of society left to die of a horrid disease, and he's seen them healed. They've seen Jesus' power over nature, they've seen him simply speak. And the storms stop and the winds stop and the waves stop. They've seen Jesus simply decide to walk out on the water to speak to them. They've seen his power over authority. They've seen his power over death. They've seen his power over sickness. They've been with him when Jesus has approached those who were suffering with being possessed by demons. And they've heard the demons squeal at the presence of Jesus as he walks up to them without speaking a word. The demons simply squeal at his presence and say, what say you, what have you with us, son of man? The demons recognize the power and the authority of Jesus, and they've experienced all of this. And here they are with Jesus, and this is how he leads all authority, not simply the power that you've seen, not simply the expressions of the power that is resident within that Godhead itself, but all authority rests in me. There is nothing that exists. On this heaven, in the heavens or on this earth, that it's outside of my authority, that I do not have the right to speak into and to control. It's unbelievable because what you're about to see is that God's authority, his power, is not simply blind authority, but it's authority that has a purpose. It's authority that God has that he wields and he exercises for a purpose. And God is about to call his people, his church, into the very purpose for which he has expressed his authority. Think about this. Before we unpack this, will we we be a church that is satisfied to trust in the authority of Jesus? He has said, Ask of me anything that you need to accomplish the purposes for which I have sent you. And I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. All that we need to do the very thing that God has sent us here and reconciled us to himself as his people, all the things, all that we need to be the people that he's called us to be and to pursue the mission that he has sent us on, he has in himself. Are we are we going to be a people who are satisfied? in his authority, that find his authority sufficient? Will we, will we take Jesus at his word? I love that he leads into this with that statement because I'm growing more and more convinced with every passing day that God is not looking for the most innovative or the most cutting edge or the most radically different group of people to call his church. I'm more and more convinced that God is not looking for innovation as much as he's looking for obedience. As much as he's really looking for faithfulness. As much as he's looking for a people who are satisfied in who he is for them. I'm more and more convinced that God is after a people who are faithful and who are obedient. And I'm not and be careful, I, I, I'm not saying anything negative about innovation. By God's grace, the gifts that many of you have are, are in the areas of, of very innovative things and, and God has given you those things first and foremost for his glory, to be used for his purpose and there will be things that we do that express the, the innovation and the creativity that exists in this place and in no way am I disparaging that. But I'm disparaging that to the degree that it detracts us from a faithfulness and an obedience to his mission and a dependence upon his authority. To the degree that innovation and creativity distract us from a dependence and a sufficiency in the authority of Jesus, then I'm against innovation and creativity. But I think God is after a people who are faithful and who are dependent. And this is what he then says. Watch this. He has all authority on heaven and earth. And it's an authority that he has for a purpose. And this is what he says. Go, therefore. Therefore, because I have all authority on heaven and earth, because all is mine, because I stand and rule over all things, even sin and death, as I stand here resurrected, conquering the grave and sin and Satan, because of that, therefore, go. Go. First part of the mission, go. More sermons have been preached on this particular word, go, in relation to these verses. I won't rehash them, but just get this. If we were to understand the mission of Jesus as terminating on the church itself, we've missed it. We're going to talk in a second that that Jesus unpacks his mission and. And one of the things about the mission that Jesus unpacks for the church is the fact that we tend to take that mission and let it dead end on ourselves. And when we take the mission that Jesus has sent his people on with the authority that his people have given them as they find themselves in him, it is meant to be spent not only on ourselves and one another, but a lost and dying world. And when we take the mission of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and let it cul-de-sac and dead end in on ourselves, what we are saying functionally is that those who do not know Jesus will spend eternity without Jesus and we really don't care about that practically that's one way the church has absolutely truncated the mission of Jesus. Is that we have taken the mission upon ourselves for ourselves and we've been satisfied to circle the wagons around ourselves and functionally say that those who do not know Jesus, who at this place and at this time will spend an eternity separated from him, well, that's okay with us. That's okay with us. We would never say it with our words but we say it with how we understand Jesus' purpose and mission for his church. So the first aspect of the mission that Jesus has for his church is To go, to go, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. Again, the tendency that we have to circle the wagons and make it all about ourselves. Jesus is gonna have to be painfully clear. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's one command in that verse. Lots of verbs, one command, One command, one Greek word, two English words. One imperative verb. I've said it every way I possibly can. For the English scholars, the Greek scholars, and the general Bible readers like me, there is one command in this verse. One imperative. It's to make disciples. God's mission for his church The authority with which Jesus has in and of himself and shares with us has a purpose. And this is the purpose and mission that God has for his church. God's plan and God's strategy to have his church be the people that he has called them to be, to reflect his glory in the place that he has sent them, that he be made much of in this life and that others be drawn to him, is simply this that we make disciples. That's his mission. It's not up for debate. It doesn't need any creative strategies. It doesn't need us bunkering up in a room, coming up with creative ways to figure out how to bring God glory and what we should, it doesn't need all those things. Jesus has been very clear. Here is the mission that I have for the church. Go and make disciples. We don't need to debate what the mission of the church is. We just simply need to be obedient. I mean, I really, I I might be the shortest sermon i probably ever preached. I could probably stop right there. Probably stop right there. We could go to repentance. We could go to confession and you can deal with Jesus because the the plain reality of it is the mission that he has for his church to make disciples is not up for debate. It just is up for obedience. But we are tempted to do everything but the one thing that Jesus has called us to do. I'm as guilty of it as you are. Don't, Don't hear me standing up here preaching to you. I might as well be sitting in a seat. We are as tempted to do everything but the one thing that he's called us to do, and that's make disciples. He's not after innovation, he's not after creativity, he's after obedience, and he's after faithfulness. Now as we get going, let me me just unpack a couple of common misconceptions about discipleship, because if you've been in the church for a long time, and a long time meaning like over six months, you've probably been exposed to some definition of discipleship, some understanding of discipleship, some program of discipleship that probably misses the boat on, on, on what Jesus is talking about here. I actually thought about doing a sermon on what discipleship is not and somehow unpacking what it is. But again, he doesn't need my creativity. Two misconceptions about discipleship. One, discipleship is not the obligation of a few. One thing that we've done in this culture in particular, and I'm not going to say this for the church at large because I think a lot of other nations don't don't miss it like this, but one thing that we've done in this culture in particular is that we have read the Gospels. We have read the Bible. We have preached the good news of Jesus in such a way that we have allowed people to take for themselves the privileges of the Gospel, to take for themselves the riches of the Gospel that we spent weeks talking about a couple of months ago, and somehow or another find a way to take themselves out from under the weight of the obligations of the gospel or the commands of the gospel. So we'll stand all day long and, and hold hands and hum together and pray together to understand what it means to be justified by Christ and his work alone and, and fight to understand that and stand secure in that. But when we read Jesus' command to the church, we say, hmm, that must be for him who's up there with the microphone. That's, that, that's not me. This one, justification, righteousness, adoption, regeneration, sanctification, glorification, I'll take that. Go make disciples? Well, that's for him. We have taken the commands of God and we have shrunk them down to the obligation of a few. When in the context of Matthew chapter 28, the command of God was to his church was to his people. It was to all of us. The mission that God has given his church, not the leaders that he has called in his church, but his church is to go and make disciples. And here's one of the obvious things. None of us outside of Jesus himself carry within us all of the gifts and skills and graces of God. It takes all of us To make disciples. It takes all of us. No one person in here has everything that it takes to make a disciple, a complete and full disciple of Christ in and of themselves. We don't. It takes the church submitted to the word, reconciled by the grace of God to make a disciple. It's not the obligation of a few. It's the command of the whole. That's one misconception about discipleship, but you know, we actually perpetuate that misconception in the church at large. I won't just lay all the fault on you for trying to figure out how to get out from under the responsibility to make disciples, because as a church, as a whole, especially in this culture, again, I won't, I won't say this about other cultures, in this culture as a whole, we actually enable you to do that, and we help you do that by defining discipleship as a program, by saying that in, in our Western mind, if there's something that needs to be done and what needs to be done is to make disciples, then there's got to be some kind of formula or strategy or structure to it. And so we do whatever we can do to make whatever we can make to make it as easy to follow and process to complete. And we give people this program and say, if you just do this, then you'll be a disciple. And so we can look at that and go, eh, program. I don't really want to be a part of that. I'll do this program. I'll do kids, but not discipleship. Um, I'll do service, but not discipleship. And the church has made discipleship a program that you can opt in of or opt out of instead of a process that you're already all a part of. And so we've actually perpetuated this idea that you can remove yourself from the weight of the command and the weight of the obligation and choose whether or not to participate in God's purpose and his plan for his people and for his glory to be reflected to all the nations on the earth. The problem is, are you really willing, do you really, when you think about it, really willing to sacrifice obedience to Christ for whatever it is that keeps you from following his command? This is his command to the church, to make Disciples. Now it's got so much baggage, I won't unpack anymore because we don't have time, so much baggage in this culture that here, when we talk about God's mission for his church to make disciples, this is what we talk about when we say cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. Because discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is a process. And the understanding of cultivation we've actually taken from the scriptures, from the Apostle Paul, who understood as a, a, as a good theologian and a good missionary that the culture that he was in, in particular, was predominantly Greek, especially when he was in Ephesus. And the Greeks had this idea that you could actually take a, a young child, um, it was harder with an adult, but with a young child, and you could so cultivate their soul. You could so cultivate their mind. You could so cultivate their being as to see every aspect of life, From architecture, to literature, to politics, to philosophy, you can see all of life through the lens of the perfect Greek ideal. That there was a Greek way of understanding all of those things. And as they would cultivate children and cultivate individuals to see life in the perfect Greek ideal way, their hope was that all those people would then inhabit the perfect Greek city. this worldview is actually called Paideia. That was the worldview. That was the process. That was the idea. The Apostle Paul understood that and he took that and he used it all throughout the New Testament in one place in particular. In Ephesians, he actually tells fathers. I'll I'll open this one up for you. Fathers, your Bibles will probably say train or discipline your children in the fear and abomination of the Lord. Different translations will say it a different way. They're translating that, that word, that idea, paideia. Give your children Cultivate their soul to see every aspect of life, to see everything as they walk along life, school, family, relationships, art, politics, religion. See all of life the way that Jesus saw it. Give your children a paideia of the Lord. Train them, cultivate their soul. Cultivate their soul to see life the way that Jesus saw life. It's really no different than what Jesus did himself. If you go to John chapter four, or in the beginning of the gospels, when Jesus calls his disciples, he simply looks at a group of men who had failed out of temple school, who had failed out of Bible school. And that's a whole other story. Um, and he looks at them simply and he says, follow me. Come and follow me. Come and follow me and learn to see life the way that I see life. Become my disciple and begin to see my passions, begin to see my agenda, begin to see my purposes. And along the way, Jesus was doing the work of cultivating their soul as he was challenging the things that exalt themselves against his passions and against his agendas and pulling them out and putting them back in ever so intelligently and ever so strategically that their soul would begin to be cultivated to see all of life the way that he saw life. That was the process of discipleship. That was the process of cultivating the soul. And so around here, when we talk about the mission of the church is to make disciples, we talk about cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. Oftentimes you'll hear us say the mission of the church is cultivating the character of the soul to reflect the character of Christ. Because what was the character of Christ if it wasn't gospel-centered? If his heart and his life was not centered on the purpose for which God sent him to this earth for? I mean, what was the character of Christ if it wasn't grace-driven? I mean, what was the character of Jesus if it wasn't driven by the grace of God? I mean, what's the character of Christ if it wasn't mission-minded? If his intent and his understanding of his purpose was not always centered and driven by the gospel and by grace and understanding why God had sent him here on this earth? So, when we talk about the mission of the church, we talk about cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people, cultivating the soul to reflect the character of Christ. It's not a program. It's a process, and it's a process that carries two sides to it. We see this in Matthew chapter 28, and uh, we'll unpack it briefly, but I want you to see it's a process that because it's not a program, it doesn't actually reside in a classroom. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, where did he take them to teach them? Took them everywhere he went. And what was the curriculum that he taught them? Everything that he said and everything that he did. Jesus would teach them the truths about who he was and about who God was and the difference that made in their life, but instead of simply teaching them about the sovereignty of God, they were with him as he took a loaf of bread and a dry fish and broke it and began to feed 5,000 people. Instead of teaching them not to lean on their own understanding and their own justification and their own ideas of works, he... He led them to the cross where they watched him offer himself up on their behalf. He did not just teach them about the holiness of God and the character of God. They were with him along the way when he went into the temple and cleansed the temple of the money changers and those who had abused the the purpose for which God's place was for. All along the way, Jesus formally taught his disciples what they needed to know and he informally showed them how it applied to their life. It was a process of the systematic and the systemic, the informal and the formal. And more often than not, when we talk about discipleship in the church, we err on one side or the other. We fall one way or the other. Some of us fall and understand discipleship as this systematic process where we have to figure out what you need to know we have to figure out the best way to get it to you. And we we'll have to figure out the best way to get the most people, the most information, and we'll get you all here. And when we can get it to you, then you're good. Well, that's part of it. But then some of us tend to major on this whole idea of the informal and the systematic. And we tend to open our lives up to other people and allow people into our lives to come alongside of us and to watch us and to be a part of our life. But we have absolutely zero intentionality about it. We tend to think that doing one another spiritual good, actually being the part of the process of cultivating the soul of another person is something that people will catch like the flu. And if they just come hang out with us and do our chores and do our errands for us and and they help us with our kids or help us with our cooking or just be around, that they'll just catch it. They'll just get it. No intentionality to it whatsoever. When it's this careful and unique balance of the two, there are things that we need to know and there are things that we need to experience and we need to see what we need to know and how it changes the way that we live. This is... What Jesus was so beautifully and artfully capturing in that one statement in Matthew 28 when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is baptism if it's not a public profession of a proclamation that you have made with your life, if it is not identifying with your life? the agendas, and the passions, and the purposes of Jesus, if it's not dying to an old way of life, an old set of values, an old community, and rising to a new life with new values, with new passions, in a new community, publicly identifying your life with Christ's life, demonstrating your allegiance to his allegiance. This is what people need to know. This is what people need to learn. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about baptizing, and people don't pick that up in a classroom. People don't pick up the difference that these understandings and these truths make and how they proclaim themselves and live themselves out in our lives when they sit in a class or read a book. They do that as you take them along the way. They do that as you draw them to you and you begin to show them the difference that these things make in your life. You begin to not simply tell them that they need to pray and give them a book on how to pray. You bring them along with you as you pray. And you help them learn what it means to still their mind. And to still their soul. And to take the scriptures and to begin to pray the scriptures. To not get lost in rambling the same words over and over and over again. And seeming like you say the same prayer over and over and over again. Because you just use the same words. But how God has given us all that we need in the scriptures. And you teach them as you pray. You don't just teach people about the sovereignty of God in Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. You don't just teach them about the sovereignty and the authority of God over all things. You show them as you pray trust and believe that though weeping may last for a night, joy does come in the morning. You don't simply teach them by the justification of God. You actually help them to experience it as they watch you trust, not in your own capacity to justify yourself by your actions, but as you in your life fight to trust God's justifying work on your behalf process is systematic and it's systemic and some of you are going crazy because you're just waiting for me to get to the end so i can tell you what you have to do and how we're going to do it but i can't do that i can't do it that's the problem we were at a at a conference this past week and i really tried hard to get a hold of the video so i could just play the video for you this morning because this is pretty much what the majority of the conference was about, and they did a much better job than I probably ever will at explaining this, but one of the pastors who was talking, he said this. A person in the church asked a great question. They said, so, with this discipleship thing, how are people in the church going to actually learn to study their Bible? He said, that's a great question. That's, that's really a great question. How many of you in the church enjoy studying your Bible and feel confident that you know how to study your Bible? Raise your hands. And So they raised their hands. And he said, now, the rest of you who want to learn how to study your Bible— those are the people who are going to teach you. Look around, see whose hands are raised, they'll teach you how to read your Bible. That's, that's it. That's discipleship. That's the process. It's not a program that we sign up for or we figure out how to systematize in the church. It's a culture of cultivation that we have to trust God to weave through the life of the church. We can create avenues, but we can't make it happen. It's a process that takes the, the entire church to complete it's a process that will come to full completion when we see him face to face and we're made like him but until that day it takes the church to make a disciple it takes the church together with the gifts that god has spread throughout this place and the passions that god has spread throughout this place to do the work of cultivating the soul to reflect the character of christ to actually do the mission that God has sent us on to cultivate gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people that exist to bring glory to God. That is God's strategy for his glory. That we would be a people who are passionate about cultivating the soul. That we would go and that we would speak the gospel of Christ not only with our mouth but with our life to those who have no idea who he is. And that we would give ourselves to the process of then cultivating their soul to reflect his character. That is his purpose. That is his mission. That is his plan for his church. We don't need to come up with anything else. We just need to be obedient. We just need to be obedient. Let me, let me close and, and read you this. Boy, this one can go forever. Discipleship cannot be mass produced. It takes time. That's why we talk about cultivating the soul. We fool ourselves to think that programs can do it, but programs just produce performances, not disciples. Listen to this David Platt, great pastor, great pastor in Alabama. He said, Do we believe Jesus' strategy? People are God's method to win the world to himself, and the devil will do whatever it takes to shift our focus onto anything but that. Do you live under the delusion? That as the church, we must produce a great performance. And to produce a great performance, we have to have a fantastic building to house the performance in, specifically designed for your comfort. And if we produce a great performance in a fantastic building designed for your comfort, then to keep you coming back week after week, we have to have first-class programs for all ages to get people to actually stay. And if we're going to have a great performance in a fantastic building built for your comfort with first-class performances and programs for you to come back and stay, then we need professionals to actually run the programs and the performances. Well, all along with the best intentions of reaching the most people, communicating not with our mouths but with our intentions and our life, please, by all means, don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. That's what we communicate when we make discipleship a program instead of understanding the process that God has called us into and the responsibility that all of us have to be obedient to his command depending upon his authority. That's the best part of the end of Matthew 28. He states his authority, he gives us his command and then he throws this tagline in and lo, I will be with you always. Do you ever wonder why he ended it that way? I mean, did you ever wonder why he didn't say, this is the end of all of Jesus' teaching. This is the end of all that he had to say. He said, no, surely, surely. I mean, you can count on this. You can take this to the bank. You can stake your life on this. I, I will be with you always. Again, I'll give you one little tip to reading Matthew, and hopefully it'll help you understand this and why this is such a great way to end this command and to end this promise and to end this letter. He ends with, I will be with you always. Do you know how Jesus was introduced in Matthew? Do you know how back in Matthew chapter one, Jesus was introduced in this letter? Back in Matthew chapter one, you don't have to flip back through there, but they went through the genealogy of of Jesus and how from Abraham, who God made the first promise that through the nations will be blessed through his people. That his purpose and his vision has always been for the nations to be blessed through his people. And he went back to Abraham, who he gave the first promise to, and he traced the genealogy all the way to Jesus. And he said, this is how I'm gonna introduce you to Jesus. You will call him this one who was promised, this one who is coming, you will give him this and you will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And for the rest of Matthew, you see God in the flesh, Christ with his people, cultivating their soul, cultivating their hearts to reflect his character. And you get to the end when He has given himself up and God has raised him from the dead and he has returned. He has told them now to go with all of the authority that he has, that he has given to them and trust this, Emmanuel, God with us, will always be with you. And here's the thing that I think is so amazing about this we will never experience the reality of that authority. And that power and that greatness that God speaks of in the first part of Matthew 28, until we give ourselves in obedience to the process that he has called us on and the mission that he has called us on to make disciples, until we put ourselves in the place where we're dependent upon him to meet the needs that we have to do the thing that he has called us to do, we will never experience the power and the authority and the greatness of God with us. We will find ourselves stagnant and bloated in our consumption of information, in our consumption of church things, in our consumption of church culture when Jesus has called us to go and to make disciples. And in the process, when we recognize that it takes all that he is for us to do the thing that he has called us to do, when we find ourselves most insufficient to do what he has called us to do, it's at that place that we experience the authority that is given to him over all things. And we experience Emmanuel, God with us, as we do the thing that he has called us to do. And I think that Matthew ends it this way and says nothing else because the mission wasn't done and it still isn't. He has said, go and make disciples of all nations and I will give you all that you need. And if you want to experience my power and my authority and my presence, it takes obedience to my mission and to my call. That's what, I mean, that's what I pray we're about. I am as distracted and tempted to other things as everyone else in here. I am as eager to do things to make a name for myself and to figure out how to make attention towards myself and to take God's resources and appropriate them for myself as anyone else. But he has called us as a people not to make a name for ourselves, but to glorify him, to bring glory to him in all that we do. And the way we go about doing that is giving ourselves in obedience to his mission to make disciples to cultivate the soul. And I think the process starts not with a clipboard that you sign up on for those who want to teach the Bible or teach people to pray or or teach people how the gospel changes the way they live and how they love and how they work. I think it starts by the people of God, those who have been changed by the grace of God, those who call themselves Christians and come together as a church. I think it starts with repentance. I think it starts with the church repenting for our willing disobedience and ignoring God's command to make disciples. I think it starts not with figuring out the best way to get all of you to do the very thing God's called you to do. I think it starts with your heart actually recognizing the call he's given you and your willful disobedience of it and us actually repenting. I think that's where it starts. And so I'm gonna pray. And for my own soul and for the sake of our church, I'm gonna gonna ask God to forgive my own willful disobedience and our willful disobedience to his mission. And I'm gonna pray that we begin to trust in his authority. We begin to trust in his sufficiency. That we begin, Our souls begin to be cultivated to see his purposes and to have his passions and his agenda. And that we would be a church that gives ourselves to his mission, to his plan, and, and for his glory. So I'm going to pray for us and, I, and I'm going to trust God that this is the culture that God does a great work of cultivating amongst us. That no matter else, what happens in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years at Redemption Hill and what it looks like 20 years down the road that it will be said of this church that the one thing they were passionate about was cultivating the character of the soul to reflect the character of Christ. That's, that's what they wanted to do. That's what they gave themselves to. All with the end that God be glorified in everything that they do. The way that they lived and the way that they served and the way that they loved. That their passions were his and their agenda was his. And that's what I want said of us. And, that's our mission. If you're curious, there it is. Let me pray for us and, and ask God to enable us to be a people who are, who are passionate for it. Father thank, you for, Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace uh, and your heart and your passion that drove you to seek us to rescue us, to search us out, to save us from ourselves. You, thank you for your passion to do that and in your passion to reproduce your heart, your life, your character in us. Well, that was your desire. That was your mission. And we praise you that, Lord, you have forgiven us of our sins and the, you've given us the, the promise of, of your word and you've given us the authority that you have over all things as we find our lives hidden in you. Lord, let us not be a church that is satisfied with cultural converts. Let us not be satisfied with a church that's made up of people who can check certain things off the list and say that because of that we Love you and we know you, Lord. Let us not be satisfied with that, but let us pursue being disciples. Let us pursue being people whose souls reflect your character. Lord, forgive us for our disobedience to this mission. Forgive us for our disregard for your passions in this and your agenda in this. Lord, forgive us for wanting to do everything but the one thing that you have called us to do, Lord, call our hearts back, draw our hearts back, keep our eyes focused on you and your purpose for your people. Enable us to surrender, Lord, to your mission, to take you at your word, to trust in your power and to obey your plan. Let us give ourselves freely to it. And may you show us the promise and the power of your greatness in new ways. And may all of this be done for your glory and by your grace. Amen.